You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Good, good. Well, um, yesterday, as uh, most of you might have heard, we celebrated someone and something incredibly important. One could even say it was a historical and monumental event, which many of people had gathered together to witness and take part in with much fanfare and rejoicing. I'm referring, of course, to my 41st birthday party. And, um, oh, right, I guess that happened too. Yes, yes, Charles III had his coronation and was crowned the king of the United Kingdom. Talk about being overshadowed, though, right? I mean, uh, it was supposed to be my special day, and yet the royal family just had to steal my thunder by choosing the same day for their big fancy to-do. For real, though, like, uh, obviously my birthday can't compare to the, the grandiose event of a coronation viewed by millions of people around the world. By comparison, it actually makes my, my birthday seem pretty insignificant, right? It's, it's very humbling, to be honest. It's very humbling. Um, and, and on that end, and, and, and in the same way, today as we continue our sermon series, Major in the Minors, we are going to be going through the prophet Obadiah. And, and what we'll find is that Judah's neighbors to the south, the prideful kingdom of Edom, are being told and warned even that they're about to get a huge dose of humility from the one who's crowned king of kings and lord of all nations. And so if you want to turn with me there to Obadiah, we're going to be starting right in verse 1, Obadiah 1, 1 to 4. Obadiah 1, 1 to 4. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And that is the word of the Lord. So we can read that the Lord here is telling this nation of Edom that, that though their pride makes them feel untouchable and invincible even, it's precisely from that place, from their, their arrogant perch where they, where they sat and, and, and smugly looked down on others. It's precisely from that place where they'll be humbled and brought low. From there, the Lord will bring them down. And then as it says in the final verse of Obadiah, it says their kingdom will be the Lord's. In other words, they think they're they're awesome and and so great, but compared to the holy God, the the creator of the universe, the king of kings, they're they're not even close. They're not even close. They pale in comparison, which is what they'll soon find out. 
At this point, though, we have to assume that these Edomites, whoever they were, must have done something or acted in a pretty grievous way for God to have sent a prophet to proclaim this judgment upon them. It happens, but it's quite rare that, that he'll send a prophet to another nation, another country. But when we look into the history of Edom, what we'll find is that this judgment on them has actually been a long time coming. And their story, in fact, starts when two fraternal twin boys named Esau and Jacob were born to their parents, Rebekah and Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. And most of us here probably know the the storied history of, of those two brothers, which begins in Genesis 25. Most notably, at one point in their early adulthood, Esau, who was the older of the twins, he comes home from hunting and he's, and he's hungry. And so he foolishly exchanged his inheritance or his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of stew. For a bowl of stew. And then Jacob would, would also then later trick Isaac, their, their, their blind father, into giving him Esau's blessing, this is the blessing of Abraham, by pretending to be his, his hairy brother. It's a, it's a weird story, but it happened. And, and, and so, but even though Esau foolishly discarded his inheritance and then Jacob now carried the blessing of Abraham and, and he would later become the founding father of, of the people and nation of Israel, God still chose to bless Esau as well. And, and he did so with livestock and, and riches and even established Esau and, and, his, and his people in the mountainous country of Seir, S-E-I-R, Seir. Joshua 24.4, among other places, tells us this. Uh, it says, and to, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. So this region that's given to Esau, would soon after become known as the kingdom of Edom, which was located south and southeast of Judah and the Dead Sea. And that's who the prophet Obadiah is addressing in his book. I have a map of that. Actually, if you, well, there it is there. So later above them would become the kingdom of Judah, but that's the kingdom of Edom right there, right, right uh, below the Dead Sea. So it's a pretty huge nation, actually. And the word Edom comes from the word, it means red. It simply means red. And, and this is because the rocky landscape of the area which they lived in had a red hue to it, or has a red hue to it still. Uh, today, though, the country formerly known as Edom is now partly taken up by Israel to the west, uh, but is mostly known as the Arab nation of Jordan, and is also famously known by the ruins of the ancient city of Petra. I have a picture of the Petra as well. Uh, some of you might recognize that. It's, those ruins are pretty cool. It would be awesome to go visit that one, one day. Um, and that tomb, as it ruins of a tomb in the ancient city of Petra, it would have been carved out uh, of the, in the rock by the Nabataeans about 500 years after the Edomites lived in that location. Um, and so the Edomites lived, lived in the hills. And um, though, uh, with that being said, recent archaeological digs of, of uh, ancient copper smelting mines in the area have now proved beyond a shadow of a doubt, uh, because there was some questions about that, but it has now proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the biblical record claiming that the Edomites had lived in the land at the same time that the Israelites were in Egypt, like the verse that I read, was true. 
It's true. The Bible wins again, as it always does. And uh, as, we, as we dig into Obadiah, right off the bat, though, we can see that, that the Lord brings up the issue of their pride, right? And it's likely that their pride or smugness as a people was rooted in a, in a, couple, of a couple of things. But first of all, they probably boasted in their security due to the fact that their land was basically impenetrable to any opposing army because of the mountain region which they lived, which basically made the area virtually impassable. More specifically, the only way to access their, their fortress or where they dwelled would have been through a, a narrow staircase and a narrow crevice. And I have a picture of that as well. I think you already saw that. If you, yeah, so there, you can see there's a narrow staircase there. It's kind of in ruins, but that, that was the only way to get to them. And then if you want to go to the next picture, Chantel. Thank you, Chantel, for doing all this. I gave her lots of stuff to do today. Uh, there's a narrow crevice as well. That's, that's kind of the ruins of a guard tower there. You had to walk through this narrow crevice to get to them. And so basically impassable for an army to get through. And so they're like, we're untouchable, right? Um, another reason for their pride and arrogance probably came from their wisdom and, and their great wealth uh, as copper miners and uh, grave harvesters mainly, who also controlled the main trade route in the area, which was called the King's Highway. They would have come into much wealth and knowledge and power over the years, over the centuries. And, and so as a wealthy, powerful, and basically impregnable nation, it's no wonder they become pretty arrogant and proud. Those hairy mountain-dwelling descendants of Esau saw themselves as secure and untouchable and invincible. And because of this, it seems like they'd, they'd figured, you know, they were, they were above everyone else, not only literally, because they lived in the mountains, but socially, militarily, politically, whatever. They were so high up in their own minds, though, soaring like eagles and, and living in their mountainous heights, that they'd neglected to look up, to acknowledge who is truly in power. And that's precisely how pride deceives us. It makes us think that we don't need God or that we're better off without him, even worse, that we can be him. It makes us constantly look down on others and we forget to look up. But anyways, what I want to highlight here, first of all, is the fact that the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom were family. They were brothers. They were Jacob and Esau, respectively. And as I tell my two sons when, whenever they get into an argument, which is hardly ever, I swear. Um, I wish. But anyways, I tell them, you're, you're brothers. You're supposed to support and stick up for each other, not tear each other down. Unfortunately, over the years, enmity had grown between the two family lines of Jacob and Esau, between Israel and Edom, even though God had specifically told them not to harm one another. For example, during the time of the Exodus, God's people had come up to the borders of Edom, and so Moses asked the king of Edom if they could pass through their lands peacefully because there was only one narrow route through the mountains. But the Edomites declined and instead chose to attack them. And then later, after the nation of Israel was finally established in the land of Canaan, the Bible tells us that the Edomites attacked Judah at least seven more times over the years, 
One time specifically when, when David was king, uh, the Edomites waged war against them and David was able to defeat them and then, and then he subjugated their nation as a vassal province of Israel. Though after King Solomon's death, years later, the Edomites eventually rebelled and they were able to uh, overcome become, and become a sovereign nation again for a while. And this fulfilled Isaac's prophecy over Esau when he said in Genesis 27, 40 to Esau, he said, by your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. And so we saw that that all took place. And so basically there were centuries of animosity between them because Esau was constantly trying to get out from his brother Jacob's shadow. And it all started with a bowl of stew. Isn't that ridiculous? It all started with a bowl of stew. Tens of thousands of people died in war because of a bowl of stew. But yet all the while, God was still merciful and and patient with the the people of Esau, right? Until around the time of the Babylonian exile in 586 BC, when God's patience for Esau seems to have finally run out. Enough was enough, God is saying through his prophet. And so it was either before the exile or right after the exile. We don't really know. But this is about the time that the prophet Obadiah comes to them to proclaim God's judgment over them. And uh, while Obadiah is the shortest book of all the prophets, being only one chapter containing 21 verses, you could read that in a couple minutes. It's really easy. So go home and do that this week. But even though it's short, it doesn't mean that it's insignificant. In fact, it just means that Obadiah just gets right to the point. Which, which I appreciate. And on that note, it's in verses 10 to 14, which we find out uh, what they'd specifically done to deserve this judgment. So let's go there, Obadiah 1, 10 to 14. It says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Again, we we can surmise from reading this, that the events which Obadiah is referring to here probably took place during one or all of the three times that the Babylonian Empire had laid siege to the nation of Judah and took God's people into exile. What he seems to be 
suggesting here is that instead of having brotherly compassion and concern for their distant cousins as as they were being besieged by the Babylonians, they arrogantly and smugly looked down on them from their supposedly impregnable and secure mountain fortress, even laughing and gloating and rejoicing at Judea's plight. Worse than that, it implies that in their pride and arrogance, They also came down from their mountain to cut off and capture any Hebrews who were trying to flee the Babylonians, even handing them over to them, ensuring their exile. And then furthermore, it says they took advantage of the situation by looting, pillaging, and annexing the emptied out villages and towns of Judah for their own gain. Pretty low. Pretty evil. And again, it was their arrogance that led them to do this, this idea that they thought that they they were untouchable, that, that they could do whatever they wanted and no one could do anything about it. But what they'll find out is that God can easily do something about it. Worse for them still is that they find out that the Lord takes any unsanctioned harm against his people personally, especially when their grievous sin against him is rooted in pride. As it says in Proverbs 16.5, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. And to that end, verses 15 to 16 of Obadiah reveal what God's going to do about it. Obadiah 1.15-16 says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. So here we see that the the nation of, of Edom will not only cease to exist because of their arrogance and violence against Judah, but that they've also become an example for the for the the plight which will also befall every other nation in the world on the day of the Lord. Of course, the day of the Lord is this theme which comes up a lot in the prophets, and and it's referring both to the Lord's initial time of judgment on whomever he's speaking to, but ultimately it's referring to that future day when Jesus, the King of Kings, comes again to establish his kingdom in full and to judge the earth in righteousness. On that day, every nation will drink of the same cup that Edom drank. They'll all be brought to nothing. The kingdom of God will reign. But until until then, this, this prophecy specifically concerns the nation of Edom. It says they'll finally reap what they've sown. What they've done to Judah shall now be done to them. And in verses 5 to 9, it tells us how. It says, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? And if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? 
and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman. That's a city in Edom. So that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So the implication here is that, is that the day will come when, when their pride gets the better of them. At a time when they think they're secure and, and so smart, they'll unknowingly be deceived and led into a trap by their very allies who will then wipe them out. Using a metaphor, Obadiah declares that a thief usually, when a thief usually comes and, and leaves behind what he can't carry, right? And grape gatherers usually leave behind gleanings. In this case, when it comes to Edom, it'll be much worse. Nothing will be left of them. The nation of Edom and the line of Esau will be brought to an end. And, and historically, we can actually see that this, this takes place. This promise, so we can see that they did not heed the warnings here. They did not heed the warnings. They did not repent. They did exactly what Obadiah warned them not to do. And so historically, this promise of destruction begins to be fulfilled a few decades later when King Nabonidus of Babylon, again, a nation that they'd allied with during the exile of Judah, finally manages to overthrow the kingdom of Edom. And I actually have a picture it's carved into the wall. Hopefully you can kind of see it. There, on, the, on the left there, it's like, it's like a rectangle, right? And on the left there is, is a depiction of King Nabonidus. And then those are Babylonian symbols there. So that's King Nabonidus. That's carved into the ruins of Edom. And this picture remains there as a lasting reminder for us of God's promised judgment fulfilled. That picture remains there to show that God keeps his promises. It's a warning. Anyways, after they were finally overthrown, it caused many of them to flee into, guess where? Guess where they, they, they went? Israel. How humbling for them. And it's there actually where, where a lot of them eventually converted to Judaism and then started to become known from that point on as the Idumeans. The Idumeans. And if anyone knows anything about King Herod, the very king who ruled at the time that Jesus was born and he tried to have Jesus killed by ordering the death of all boys under the age of two, so he's an evil guy. If you know anything about him, you might know that he himself was an Idumean. That's right, the Herodian line of kings were descendants of Esau. So again, this shows that Esau is trying to take that blessing back from Jacob, historically, over and over again. But how did he become king of the Jews, as he was called, before the real one came along? Simple, by using his wealth and allying with the Romans. He was a puppet king for the Romans. What did Obadiah say about their allies? They're going to destroy them. And on that, an Obadiah's prophecy of Esau's line coming to an end at the hands of their allies, which was also prophesied by Ezekiel and Jeremiah, by the way, is fully fulfilled when the Romans destroyed and sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD, mostly erasing the line of Esau from history. Furthermore, furthermore Obadiah also proclaims at the end of the book that the Israelites and, and Judeans who've been scattered into exile 
the very same people whom they mocked and, and arrogantly mistreated, will not only be brought back to their own land, but will also be given the area of the Negev, or the Negev, which was at that time part of the kingdom of Edom. And guess what? When you look on a map of Israel today, that area of the Negev is now part of Israel, just as God had promised them. God keeps his word. The Bible wins again. So when we read through the Obadiah, this is actually a message of hope and justice for God's people. But to the Edomites, it was certainly a humbling and shameful warning for them. But what can we learn from this? A lot of things, actually. But I want to just bring out three lessons that I want to I highlight this morning that we can learn. First of all, we're reminded once again through the prophet Obadiah that the Lord our God is sovereign and Lord over all the earth. He reigns over all. And one day, every nation, every tribe and tongue will recognize it. Psalm 86 Verse 9 agrees when it says, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. As well as Psalm 72, 11, which says about Jesus, All kings will bow down before him, and all nations will serve him. Again, this prophecy of which Edom has already been made an example of will, will come to pass fully when Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one in whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given, will come again to establish his kingdom. Yet even as we wait and anticipate that day, it should give us confidence that, that when corrupt or, or powerful nations prosper or act wickedly in their pride or arrogance or, or selfishness, we know that they're not outside the view and judgment of God. Even when we stand here and we think, well, what can we do about it? We know that God sees it. And he'll hold every nation accountable. They'll all reap what they sow. There will be justice. They will bow before the Lord. But I think this should, this should be a warning for us as well, though, to ensure that we don't ever put our hope in, in temporal kings or leaders or in nations. Our, our hope is not in Canada. Our hope is not in the conservative party or the liberal party or any party, Right? In fact, I'd argue that any type of nationalism or towing a party line is actually antithetical to the kingdom of God to which we as Christians belong. As heaven's citizens, we're exiles in whatever country we live in. Of course, we can and should positively bless and lovingly influence our country and our neighbors and, and take part in those things. Also that they can see and know the Lord. But ultimately, our loyalty lies with Jesus and his kingdom alone. All the nations will, will come to nothing. And again, as Obadiah reminds Edom in the last verse, their kingdom is the Lord's. It's not theirs. It's God's. This, and this is true everywhere. He's the true king, and we're his citizens no matter what country we live in. If that sounds controversial to you, just pray about it. Which leads us to the second thing that, that we can learn from Obadiah. 
which is, which is that God takes what happens to his people personally. What's interesting is that due to Judah's sin and idolatry, God had relinquished his, his protection over them and allowed the Babylonians to, to bring the people of Judah into exile in order to discipline and humble them. However, he did not give consent to the Edomites to then arrogantly kick them while they were down. And besides, as, as brothers, again, they should have loved and supported Jacob. But, but as it says in 1 John, if anyone hates his brother, the love of God is not in them. The Edomites had made that truth painfully obvious. And God was not only not impressed by this, he actually viewed their arrogant actions against his people as a sinful slight against himself. He said, you did this on my holy mountain. And just like how Jesus many centuries later would would take Saul's persecution of, of Christians as a personal slight against himself as well. Saul, Saul, Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus, why are you persecuting me? So knowing that God views us this way as his own should actually give us confidence and courage as believers in the face of any persecution or, or hardship, right? That, that when we're mocked or reviled, hated, or persecuted for following Jesus, we know that Jesus himself takes it personally. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords receives what happens to us as if it's happening to him and with him in our court enacting justice on our behalf. You know, we have nothing and no one to fear as we live out our faith. For if God is for us, who can be against us? So what an encouragement. These two things that we've just learned. What an encouragement that God reigns over all and that we as his citizens are his, his, his people and that he cares for us. The third and final lesson, though, that we can learn from Obadiah this morning is simply, but importantly, this. That we need to watch out for our pride. For as the nation of Edom displayed for us, it's our pride which can so easily lead us to ruin. Proverbs 16, 18 says exactly that. It says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is the root of sin, really. It tells us that that we're smarter and that we know better than God or anyone else. It tells us that we're untouchable that we deserve all the credit, that we can do what we want, even at the expense of others, and that no one can stop us, precisely because we're more important than them. It looks down on others with social or moral superiority. It's entitled, it's power-hungry, refuses instruction, only cares about how things benefit them, is easily offended at criticism, and is self-seeking. Ultimately, pride convinces us that we don't need God, and worse, that we can become like him on our own. Psalm 10, verse 4 says, In his pride the wicked man does not seek him. 
In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. So we can see the danger of pride. On that end, it was pride which led to the original sin in the garden when Adam and Eve thought they could become like God themselves. And it's pride which still infects our hearts today. In fact, every time we turn from God and go our own way, pride is at the root. Every time, like the Edomites, we seek to build our own selfish kingdoms, pride is at the root. Every time we seek to do something in our own strength, pride is at the root. Every time we choose to serve ourselves over lifting up others, pride is at the root. And one of the most dangerous things about it is that, is that it has the ability, the ability to convince us that we don't struggle with it. If you're sitting there right now thinking, oh, this part of the sermon doesn't apply to me because I'm super humble. Pride is at the root. It, it deceives us all. Just like it did to Edom. As uh, John Piper writes, pride is based on a lie. The person who yields to the temptation of pride surrenders his capacity to think and feel and act without deception. Pride distorts every area of thought and life. So no wonder, as it says in James 4, 6, but the Lord gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, the, the irony of, of pride is that the more we give into it and the, and the more that our ego tries to convince us that we can become like God, the less like God we become. Rather, what the Bible reminds us of again and again is that godliness is only found through humility by laying down our lives in surrender to him, by saying, not I, but through Christ in me, by recognizing and acknowledging that God is God and we certainly are not. In fact, Jesus modeled for us what true power and true godliness looks like when, when he humbled himself in obedience to the Father even to the point of being born as a human and dying for our sin upon the cross. And it was only because of that humility, which God then raised him up from the grave and then seated him at his right hand to have all authority over heaven and earth. His humility was the road to his glory and power. Whereas pride and arrogance might make us feel big and, and important and intelligent, but it actually leads to destruction because it causes us to neglect to look up and see the one who truly reigns. And the good news, though, is that Jesus bore that judgment of, of our pride for us and became that humility for us. As Andrew Murray in his classic book, Humility, writes, Hence, it follows that nothing can be our redemption but the restoration of the lost humility, the original and only true rela relation of the creature to its God. And so Jesus came to bring humility back to earth, to make us partakers of it, and by it to save us. 
In heaven, he humbled himself to become man. The humility we see in him possessed him in heaven. It brought him, he brought it from there. Here on earth, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. His humility gave his death its value and so became our redemption. Jesus Christ took the place of and fulfilled the destiny of man as a creature by his life of perfect humility. His humility is our salvation. His salvation is our humility. And how can we not be anything but humbled as we, as we look at our holy God, as we see our holy God? How can we not be anything but humbled in light of, of, of his unconditional grace and love that he's given us through Christ who humbled himself for us? His humility is our salvation. His salvation is our humility. And so it says in 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. In other words, don't be like the nation of Edom, who let their arrogance and ego get the better of them, eventually leading them down that path of destruction. Instead, surrender yourselves before God, the God of love and grace, and allow him to forgive you and then lift you up. And the amazing thing is that once we've been rescued by Christ and filled with his spirit, we can then have that same mind of Christ among ourselves. As it says in Philippians 2, 3 to 11, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. How? Because it's yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in the the same vein of Jesus who laid down his life for others, when we walk in his grace, we can also do the same. We can have that same mind of Christ who became a servant to others. Unlike the Edomites who mistreated their brothers for their own gain. As believers, secured in our identity and satisfied in the riches of Christ, we no longer need to be self-seeking or self-affirming. We we no longer need to live for ourselves because Jesus already died to save us and has given us all we need. Therefore, we're set free. We're set free to live for others, to count others as more significant than ourselves, to sacrifice and give generously to those in need, to celebrate another's successes, to meekly receive instruction and accountability, and to love our neighbors and our enemies, to serve one another joyfully, all for the glory of God. 
Again, pride calls us to hoard our things and build our own empires and tells us that, that we're better than others. But humility gives us the capacity to walk in obedience to the King of Kings, to sacrifice and serve and think of others as more significant than ourselves. So let's allow the pride of Edom to be a warning for us to cause us to soberly examine and admit the pride in our own hearts so that we can then humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace to confess our sin. That at times we are no better than the Edomites. So Lord, we come to confess for when we have been selfish instead of generous, for when we've been proud instead of humble, for when we've arrogantly or or, or smugly looked down on others, instead of lifting them up, for when we've held grudges instead of forgiving. Lord, we've proven over and over again that we need more of you and less of ourselves. Gracious God, we we fall before you now and we ask for your forgiveness in these things, knowing that you give it freely. And so we receive it with joyful and thankful hearts. Lord, please renew our minds with the mind of Christ so that we may also discern what is good and walk obedience to your word. Fill us with your spirit so that we may be your witnesses in the world, loving and serving one another for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray.